0: This will be released on uh, on Christmas.
1: I don't even really know when Christmas is. Like, I have to be reminded. Everyone's eaten ice cream and cookies. And that is a big problem for cheese manufacturers because apparently dry ice is used in the manufacture
0: of cheese. You're white as a ghost. I would really appreciate if you lie down, sir.
1: I'm gonna. You're gonna have to cut this into the beginning, but uh, we had to remind our viewers uh, about the APL drinking game. That uh, every time Connor mentioned APL during this episode, you were supposed to take a shot of eggnog.
0: Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode five, recorded on December 20th, 2020. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host Bryce, we bring you a holiday special, casual Christmas chat where we talk about anything and everything we feel like. The short version of the story is uh, I um was going. I decided after coming back from my first co-op uh, slash internship um, in 2011 that I wanted to double major in computer science because I realized computer science was the future. And in meeting with the representative or whatever, uh, administrative person for the computer science department, um, like I said, long story short, she was like, oh, we've got this dual degree program. It involves you going to China for two years. You should do it and then i said sure and then i went to china and i only made it a year because uh they kicked me out
1: wait wait you got (laughs) you got kicked out of china i mean are you you an enemy of the people's republic of china
0: (laughs) no 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 uh i think they'd have me back um i mean the university i went to would definitely not have me back (laughs) why why did the university (laughs) kick you out uh, they had a rule in their handbook that was written in Chinese um, and at the time, I couldn't read Chinese, uh, so I'm not sure how they expected me to know this rule but you had to attend at least 70% of your courses in order to write the final exam um, and if you don't write the final exam, obviously you can't pass um, I was only attending uh, like 0% of my courses <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: So you, so like me, you too were a bad. Hey, you also flunked out of a school. Perfect. We have. Uh, it makes me feel better yeah, about my academic yeah. uh, failures. Just you flunked out of a school that was, you know, in China. You didn't went to none of your classes.
0: Well, so I started out. I showed up in like um, it was like May of 2012, I think, and uh, I went to courses like really. I went to all of them. Uh, my, my Chinese like skyrocketed and then that course sort of only went till f- from May till about like the beginning of July and then I had two months off. and at that point in my life, since I was 15, um, I had always either been working or in school. I had never I had never had any amount of time where I wasn't doing at least one of those. Um, and so I started to party a lot. Uh, Because white people drink for free in China, or at least to where I was. Um, And then, you know, we got back to class in September. And our teachers at that point, like in the previous semester, they spoke English. In the new semester, they did not speak any English. Um, Wait, different teachers
1: or just the same teachers, but just not in English?
0: Different teachers, different classes. Yeah, so completely in Chinese. And like, imagine taking a grammar course Uh, about new Chinese words that you don't know in Chinese. Um, It's not a very good teaching tactic because you're like, you know, here's a new word and now I'm going to explain what that word means in Chinese, which is already a language you're currently learning. Um, Versus like, so everyone in that class would be on what, there was this like app called Pleco where you would type in the Chinese character and it would recognize the Chinese character and then translate it to English. Because like no one had any idea what the teacher was saying. I was a, a little bookworm, so I would always read ahead, and I knew what the teacher, like I could make out the explanation, but like I remember one class, they were just telling the difference between like idea, suggestion, and like thinking or something, and like one's like young Ji, uh, Ji young, and like young Fa, and like I just made that up, like I'm that's probably all wrong, um, but uh, like it's very subtle, like the difference between a suggestion and an idea, and like trying to explain that, and everyone was just super confused. The point being that like it was a waste of my time to go to class, so I stopped going, kept partying, and then signed up for uh, salsa dance classes, and basically just became a full time salsa student.
1: I do um, remember, I do remember that part of the story. Yeah.
0: And then I I showed up to my lect my final exams in December of that year or January of that year, and um, I basically got into like an argument with like the professor because at that point. I had, like, stopped going to class and started just, like, hanging out with my Chinese friends all day and, like, going to salsa classes that were taught in Chinese where no one spoke English. There was one guy that spoke English. Um, but, like, basically everyone... I'd, like, so I couldn't survive unless if I was speaking Chinese. And, like, if you want to learn a language, that is the sure fastest way, like, it is, you basically... Is to
1: go take a salsa dancing <laughs> lesson. No, it's, it's
0: just immersing yourself in a place where they don't speak your language. Like, very quickly you learn... Uh, a key phrase um how was it in chinese it was like ni yeah. kui or something it's like but basically can't can you explain that for me um like well, well booming by which means i don't understand ni kui like can you explain yeah. um and like and then like they're super happy um like all the people i met in china were like super super nice and always were just like oh yeah yeah sure because like if you're speaking in Chinese and explaining that you just don't understand what they're saying, um, your, your, your ability in that language, whether it's Chinese or another language, is clearly good enough that if they choose a different set of words, you can probably understand what they're saying. Um, anyways, so, like, my Chinese got so super, super good, and then I showed up to this exam, and, like, clearly, like, my Chinese at that point was way better than any other of the students, and I just got into this full-blown argument with the prof, and I was like, what do you mean I can't write? Like, Wait, was the argument clearly,
1: in Chinese?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was in Chinese. I was just cuz they don't speak English. So I was just like, what do you mean I can't write the exam? Like, you know, clearly and they're like, "Well, you haven't been coming to class." And I was like, "Why does that matter?" Like, in in where I come from, <laughs> you don't need to go to classes. You can just show up and write the exams." They're like, "Well, that's against the rules." And then anyways, the university was like, "You've got two options. You can either go home or you can retake all the courses that you didn't attend um, and rewrite the exams after having attended the courses." And I was like, "Ah, that does not seem like a good uh, use of my time, so <laughs> I just went back to Canada.
1: That actually, that actually brings up an interesting topic. Um, so, as far as I know, almost all programming languages are English centric. But um, I was, I was looking at some data the other day, and there are a lot of you know engineers in China, and in in, 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 not just in China, but in countries that do not speak English as a primary language. In fact. I'd, I'd say probably the majority, probably more than the majority of, uh, of software engineers these days are like, don't speak English as their primary language. And there's probably a good chunk of those who, who don't uh, speak English at all. Um, yet, almost all programming languages um, uh, are English centric. Um, I like I, I I I think that that's true. Do you do you know of any programming languages that are not English centric or that are not at least like Latin centric?
0: Um, I do not know of any, but um, my response to your observation is that like that doesn't surprise me at all. So like one thing that you will learn if you like travel abroad, especially to um, well, I was in China, so I can't I can't speak for other um Asian countries, but I've heard as much the same, is that honestly, like a lot of the graduate students that I met in China, like their knowledge of the English language is uh, superior to mine. Um, Like I many times would hang out in like the common areas of these sort of uh, residences and they would have these little exchange groups where like you would ask Chinese questions, they would ask English questions. And like the questions that I got asked about English, they'd be like, why is this not uh, valid grammatically? And then, like, I would read it and just be like, honestly, like, I do not know how to answer that question. I just know that it's not <laughs> like the like the English language is phenomenally complicated. And like the way you learn it as a kid, half the time is just your parents saying like, no, you can't say that. Yes, you can't say that. And you just you develop like an intense understanding. It's like a gut. Yeah. Um, for, for
1: native speakers, it's like a gut feeling Whereas where you learn it. You might think about it more academically. It's there's an interesting analog. So uh, my grandfather used to teach um, uh uh, citizenship courses for people who were about to take their U.S. citizenship class, and he he used to always say, you know, like I he um, uh, a native a Native American uh, uh, like a native born American citizen who had you know fought in World War II was a veteran. Um, he could probably couldn't have passed one of those tests if he hadn't you know been one of the people teaching it um, because you know that, that was just sort of. It was just sort of an inherent thing for him. Um, so it, it's like an interesting property that sometimes people that, you know, learn a language um, uh, might uh, uh, ha- might know it better than the native speakers or might know the, you know, the not necessarily know how to speak it better, but understand the language and, and understand it sort of academically better than a native speaker. Whereas a native speaker might just be like, no, you got to say it this way because that just... That's what sounds right, you know, it's gut reaction.
0: Yeah, yep. Yep. And, the, and so, like, that just, it brings me to the point that, uh, like, so out of China, out of India, like, if you graduate from, uh, basically, like, a, a, one of the top universities, like, your grasp of the English language is phenomenal. So, like, and English is the, uh, it, is the it is the not, it is not the most common uh, language spoken as a first language. But it is the most common language spoken overall um and and so like uh I'm not surprised that like when a programming language pops up, even if it's even if it is popping up uh, out of you know china and I'm sure there are like some I was just shared the other day a link to uh fledgling programming languages um yeah, let me send this to you, All although right. at this point, I feel like we should be reporting we should be recording the uh. Well, I
1: think this is this is the episode, right? This is the episode. No,
0: we didn't. We didn't do. We no. We
1: got to start. We got to do one, two, three. Clap. No, 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 uh, no, this is going in the episode. I want. I want to. I want to drill, drill down on this. Well, I actually. I think that there is one example um, of a language that's. I'm not going to say popular. Um, it's that's that's going to offend you, but there is an example of a language which is not English centric, um, uh, which would be APL, right? Because APL does not have keywords; it's all symbols. Yeah.
0: Um. yes and no. I mean, technically, in the dialogue APL implementation, they do have some keywords like if colon and else colon, etc. But, like, that stuff is not considered idiomatic. Um, if you're dropping down into that, like, you're dropping down into, I think, I don't actually know why it was added potentially as a bridge for people from, uh, you know, von Neumann languages. Um, But I guess that's true. I mean, APL... Yeah, what did I – I've said many times in tweets and in YouTube videos that um, people view or say APL is a very – it's the most unreadable language. Um, I mean, I, I recall one of the first times I met uh, Kate Gregory at a C++ Toronto meetup. I know that at Waterloo, which is uh, – <laughs> people that go to Waterloo like to call it the Harvard of Canada, which is not really true. Um, it's a very good school, but I wouldn't say it's the Harvard of Canada. But it has a very, very good computer science program. And um, it used they used to teach APL back in the day. And I know that both uh, Kate Gregory, um, who for those of you not in the C++ community is a very well-known uh, C++ speaker and consultant, and also Herb Sutter, who is the chair of the C++ ISO committee, they both went to Waterloo. Um, and so I asked Kate if she had been taught APL or knew anything about APL and what her thoughts on it were. And she said... Uh, yeah, it's a very unreadable language. And I was hoping she would say that she loved it. Um, but yeah, most people don't. Uh, and the point the point that I'm trying to make here is that um, people don't say Chinese is unreadable. People say that they can't read Chinese because they don't know the characters. The same way that when uh, there's a quote about when you read a Russian poem, if you can't read Russian, you don't say that that poem is terrible or that poem you know is unreadable you just acknowledge the fact that you don't speak or read russian um, and so there's this like there's this disconnect because most programming languages look the same when you see something that looks different people just automatically say well that's just that's just line noise and that's unreadable but the truth is is that apl is to you know c++ what chinese is to english um, you can't look at Uh, APL and just say, oh, that's, that's awful. I can't read that. You first have to learn APL um, and then judge whether or not uh, it's, it's a beautiful or, or readable language. And um, I think it's, it's probably one of the biggest mistakes of the, uh, of the APL community is that they haven't been able to communicate this. Um, When they hear, oh, it's unreadable. Most of the responses is just that, oh, well, you just, you just don't know APL. Like I've never heard anyone in a APL talk or in a, in a podcast articulate like this difference that like you can't appreciate APL until you learn it. And a lot of people say, well, you know, I, I Barry Revson once on Twitter, I posted something about APL and he alluded to the 1979 Turing award, uh, paper and speech that Kenneth Iverson, whose birthday was just the other day or hundredth birthday. Um, he's passed away, but there was a APL party, a celebration of his centennial birthday on December 17th. Um, where uh, his paper for the 1979 Turing Award was called uh, Notation as a Tool of Thought, um, which is that you know if you learn this APL notation, it was originally called Iverson notation, um, you can learn to think differently. And uh, I haven't even read the paper. I've, I've read bits of it. But Barry Revzin um, is alluding to this paper when he said um, notation as a tool of thought, uh, dot, 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 not the way I think, and sort of, I think he was retweeting some of the APL code I had tweeted. Um, well, you can't, you can't say you don't think that way, if you, if you don't even know what the symbols mean. Um, and that's like, at one point, I had, uh, I had thought that potentially, the paper shouldn't have been called notation as a tool of thought, it should have been called algorithms as a tool of thought, because really, each of the symbols represents an algorithm. Um, and then it wasn't until later on that I realized that not all of the symbols are algorithms. Some of them are operators, um, which is basically uh, not all of them, but a lot of the operators map to something called combinators, um, which are, exist in Haskell, and they exist in something called the S-K-I, Combinator, uh, combinator Calculus, um, that was created by uh, Sean Finkel in a 1924 paper and then later uh, was like developed by uh, Haskell Curry, first name Haskell for the programming name Haskell, Curry for the common... Uh, word that's used for currying functions um anyways i've got two swans i tweeted them out the other day uh that i named uh, sean finkel and curry we, we should clarify
1: uh, these are not actual living swans they're little stuffed <laughs> swans that are sitting on next to um connor's plant whose name i don't remember that's the name of the plant the oh swans. yeah
0: yeah my plant my you don't remember maxwell's name maxwell ah, He's insulted. Right. Yes, I named uh, I named Maxwell after Maxwell Newman, who was the uh, computer science professor um, that uh, inspired, or at least Maxwell uh, Professor Newman uh, said that he inspired Alan Turing uh, to go in the direction that he went with his career in basically um, developing the Turing machine. Um, anyways, that's a long-winded ramble on, um, and oh yes, that uh, I thought it, at one point the paper should be. Algorithms as a tool of thought, not notation as a tool of thought, but the language is both algorithms and operators. Um, Or you can read operators as combinators. Like so, for example, the Haskell flip that we talked about, I believe, in the previous episode. There is a a symbol in APL um, called commute, which is exactly that. Um, And what's even what's even more beautiful is that. Um, both like every symbol is both monadic and dyadic so it, if it is past a single argument it has one behavior and if it's past two arguments then it uh, has a different behavior themonadic course that
1: a little bit confusing because don't do the, do the the behaviors aren't always a natural extension of each other correct
0: oh oh like this is now now we're now we're this getting is now apl like, the
1: podcast
0: <laughs> no now we're getting into like Secrets that I've been keeping, um, for future talks that I'd like to give, um, that like, uh, yes and no. Like many times there, there is th- so much thought, which is why I just, I think Ken Iverson is such a genius, like thought and care w- were put into, um, like the, the monadic and dyadic meanings of these, uh, algorithms. Um, what is, uh an example that I wasn't planning on showing in it. Well, you know, you know what? Screw it. If you're listening to this podcast, you're getting a a, 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 preview of what is going to be, you know, I've been thinking about this moment that I was going to a This gonna, is Connor's uh,
1: Christmas piece. present to you.
0: Yeah. This is, this is a merry. Yeah. We, well, so I thought we hadn't started the podcast, so I don't know how we're going to cut this, but yeah, this, this podcast That's, is hey, coming That, that out is on,
1: your problem, not mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's coming out on Christmas. Uh, so happy holidays to everyone. This is, this is, um, this is yes. This is my Christmas gift to all the listeners. So um, there is a algorithm uh, in APL that is a circle with a vertical line through it. So uh, imagine just like the pipe symbol with the letter O uh, overlaying each other. Um, and what's what is well? There's so many directions I can go with this. What, what a small tangent is that in the original APL back in the '60s they had like, uh, they didn't have Unicode and all this stuff. So they had like a set of characters that were simple and that for certain characters, you would literally have to superimpose two of the characters next to each other. So a circle was Pi um, and uh, the pipe, I believe the dyadic version was uh, modulus or technically um, uh, the opposite of modulus, but you can just read modulus. And the uh, monadic version of the pipe was absolute value. But if you if you took the pipe and the circle and uh, overlaid them, you get an algorithm uh, called reverse. And this is, it's by, I'm, I am, I'm just giving so much away. Merry Christmas. I'm probably gonna get an APL tattoo <laughs> uh, saying, we, I'll include this stuff about hating needles, maybe. It, maybe if that stuff got cut. Earlier, Bryce and I were talking about how we hate needles, uh, but we're obviously still both gonna get the vaccine um i i decided uh in january of 2019 roughly a year ago that i wanted this tattoo but i had always hated the idea of getting a tattoo so i figured you know what i'm gonna wait a year if i still want this tattoo in a year then i'll probably go ahead and get it um and now that i'm saying it on the podcast is basically i basically have to get it but uh so reverse we will do a podcast
1: episode while you're getting the tattoo
0: (laughs) sure um so reverse, it's it's so beautiful for so many reasons. So, uh, first of all, it is visually nunomic. Think about a circle with a vertical line through yeah. it. If you imagine that you could grab the bottom... So, like, the line extends. It's not... Uh, the circle... Uh, picture it not as just, like, a diameter, but picture the line extending past the end of yeah, 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 uh, the yeah. circle. Um, if you... Imagine you can grab the bottom of uh, that line and twirl it. That visually is reversing.
1: I I think that's reaching. I think like a little YouTube symbol that might be like like a good visual representation for reverse. No,
0: so, so but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Maybe by itself you might be like ah that's a stretch. Until you realize there's another algorithm called transpose which is a circle with a slash through it. And what do you do when you transpose a matrix? You twirl it once again by where the line is. Yeah. And there's another algorithm, which is a horizontal reverse. So if you have a a rank one uh, matrix, which is just a vector, um, it doesn't do anything. You can't horizontally. You can only sort of vertically reverse that. But if you have a matrix you can both horizontally reverse it, so like row-wise reverse, or you can column-wise reverse. Well, there are three symbols. Each of them is a circle with a line through it. The line represents basically the plane that you are uh, mutating your two-rank matrix, um, which is so, like, when I started learning APL, I didn't realize that, like, they were visual representations of the mutation that you were making to your vector or matrix. And then when I realized it, I was like, what? Like, this is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And like, once you see it, you are never going to forget it. You don't need to know the name of reverse or transpose. It is a visual representation of the way that you are mutating like your data. And this is this is just the start. Your original question was, it's probably like, isn't it confusing to have an overloading based on the number of arguments? Um, because there's probably not a relationship between uh, the uh, monadic version and the dyadic, so here we go. Here we go, Bryce. You're not going to know the answer to this question, but I'm going to I'm going to ask it anyways, <laughs> and our listeners can listen along. Um, what do you think the dyadic version of the reverse glyph is? So, like the same symbol that takes two arguments. Could you Could you guess? And I'll give you a hint. It exists in the C++ uh, algorithm header. Hmm. the same way that reversed exists. reverse exists in the C++ algorithm header.
1: All right, give me a second. Um, so what is a natural extension of reverse? Well, it's an, it's an algorithm which takes two, uh, two input sequences, so that narrows it down It Actually,
0: I'll, I'll give you a hint. It doesn't take two input sequences. It's an algorithm that takes uh, three iterators. Three iterators. Um, on the same range.
1: Wait, three begin iterators or begin, end,
0: and uh, begin? A begin, uh, one in the middle, and one at the end. And that should really narrow it down. Wait, wh- oh, partition? Uh, partition takes two iterators plus a, a, a unary predicate. Um, in fact, I can only think of two algorithms at the moment that take a begin and end and something in the middle.
1: Hang on. I got to pull up the list at least.
0: If you're if you're if you're listening along, uh, I hope some of you are thinking some of the C++ developers at least are thinking they know it in their head because it's oh, man, this is the the suspense. (laughs) I don't know. All right. Tell me.
1: It's a rotate. Ah, rotate. Yes. (sighs) Yes, that would make sense. Yeah, that is natural.
0: But wait, so. Wait, what, what it, are the other algorithms
1: natu- that take uh, three iterators, that, that take a, a, a sequence and then an iterator into the sequence?
0: So uh, the two off of my top of my head were std rotate and std nth element. Um, yeah, I think those are the
1: only two. Maybe I, Maybe
0: rotate copy? Yeah, rotate copy.
1: Well, no, technically it takes another sequence, but the output's sequence. Yeah,
0: if if there's any of the suffix prefix extensions, yeah, I don't really. Yeah, those I'm, don't count. I'm thinking more of the the base ones. Um, but yeah, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you know an extra one, feel free to yeah, ping us on Twitter when this goes out. Um, but so you you think that yes, rotate is a it's a kind of reversey reverse ish algorithm, but there's even there's even more, and I I have to imagine that this is intentional. On uh, Ken Iverson's um, part, that it's more than just it's a reverse, a reverse-ish algorithm. Rotate. Rotate's implementation is extremely linked to reverse. Do you know why?
1: Uh, and here's the, no, here is the here is the
0: beauty of APL because I learned this from APL. Like I learned this from APL. R- Rotate is implementable in terms of three reverses. Oh yeah, that kind of I, I yeah that kind of in, makes sense. Well, in fact, I am would not be surprised if the C plus plus std rotate implementation is implemented in terms of three reverses. You're given your we'll call it uh, you know F for the begin, uh, L for the end, and M for the midpoint. Reverse F to M, reverse M to L, and then reverse the whole thing F to L. You're done yeah that is that is a rotate that's that's quite a I, I i learned that like you could implement stood rotate one of you know it's got to be one of you know everyone has a soft uh a place in their heart um for stood rotate ever since you know sean parent uh in his c++ seasoning 2013 um talk you know uh talks about you know reduces his example down to a stood rotate and a find if um but, like, I, I had never really thought about the implementation of std stood rotate. And then from messing around with APL and trying to, like, learn why why are there, um, you know, why why does one choose uh, the dyadic and monadic um, names or, or sort of uh, a- algorithms um, for each of the glyphs? And, like, there's so much thought and meaning put into it. Um, and I don't know some people might be listening and thinking, okay, this just seems like a, a bunch of nonsense. That's not really that important, but like so much of it, like once, once you, once you learn, uh, the APL glyphs, um, honestly, like uh, so much of it just becomes like, it's it's, it's literally like the title of the, the Turing award speech notation as a tool of thought. Like you, you learn the std algorithms, uh, the algorithms in the stood algorithm header. Um, and you, you start to think in terms of, you know, uh, rotates and reverse and, and, um, you know, elements and transforms and stuff like that. And it's like going and learning APL is just an extension of that, except instead of having to spell out, you know, stood colon, colon, each of the algorithm names, it's a single, it's a single click of a, a button on your key or a, a key on your keyboard. Anyways, digression over. I don't know how we, <laughs> we started talking. Oh, right. We were talking about languages, not in English and APL is the closest one to that, um, and that, yes, there there is a lot. There is a huge barrier to entry uh, for anyone that sort of sees APL. Um, and I, yeah, I'll keep I'll keep my my biggest reveal. Although maybe the rotate, the stood rotate, is the biggest reveal from from the talk that I wanted to give. Um, but yeah, it's there's just so much um, in the language that I just find just absolutely like mesmerizing. Like take and drop. Are two algorithms that we got in C20 with the range uh views. And those exist in almost every functional programming language. Uh take is an up arrow in APL, and drop is a down arrow. Um and for me, having like symmetry in uh you can't really call it the name of the the algorithm in APL because it's a glyph, but there is Absolute symmetry vertically between uh, the take and the drop, whereas in functional programming languages and now C plus plus twenty range views, you have to know that like take and drop are uh, sibling algorithms. Like they go together. Take with a number on a range basically uh, takes the first n elements, whereas drop removes the first n elements. So they are they're basically like the opposites of each other. But like take and drop. If you don't come from the functional programming uh, land, uh, it's not it's not immediately obvious what those do. And I think in certain languages, they actually don't use take. If I'm not mistaken, some languages use skip um, for take. Um, whereas in APL, like it's it's unmistakably like those two algorithms are related to each other. Anyways. I haven't let you speak for a while, so... (laughs) (laughs) There's
1: nothing I love better than hearing you uh, uh, ramble about APL. Um, I I have a question for you, though. Um, uh, Putting my uh, programming language standards hat on, uh, there is one of the ISO programming languages which has been translated into other languages, and there is an official version in other languages, um, with keywords in other languages, uh, can you guess which language it is?
0: I did once go through all the ISO uh, languages. Um, this is a long shot because I don't think this is actually like officially an ISO language. I think it went part way through the process and then froze. Is it Ruby? It is
1: not Ruby. No,
0: it's an it's an older language. Is it Ada?
1: It's not Ada. You're you're close though. Out. Alphabetically close to ADA.
0: Alphabetically close to ADA. Algol.
1: Yes, Algol 68. So um, ISO, which is the International uh, Organization for Standardization, uh, and ISO is not an acronym. It's not the International Standards Organization. It's the International or- Organization for Standardization. Um, ISO used to be... I think it used to be like the acronym in French, but now it's just, uh, it's just like the name. And I believe it comes from like a Latin word. Um, uh, which, uh, Oh boy, I'm, I'm being a bad, a bad ISO person that I don't remember it off the top of my head. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's the international organization for standardization and, um, uh, the main languages of ISO are English, French, and Russian. Um, oh, yeah. the The name uh, uh, ISO is derived. It's not Latin. It's Greek. It's it's derived from the Greek word "isos," meaning equal. Um, uh, so it's not an acronym. Uh, don't think it's an acronym. But um, there's multiple different ISO official languages, English, French, and Russian, and standards are allowed to be translated into some other languages too. Um, Now, it's very rare for sort of programming language or technical standards to be published in a language that's not English, which is sort of the primary language, but um, ALGO 68 um, was published in Russian, German, French, Bulgarian, and Japanese. Um, and the standard was also available in Braille. Um, and in, in, it wasn't just the standard itself. Like, the uh, the keywords were also translated. So this is like a Russian version of Algo where all the keywords are, you know, in Russian and acrylic. And I, I, I wonder whether it's actually been implemented um, in these other <laughs> languages. But the fun fact we could technically have the C++ language standard in um, in other languages and and I think that there's some there's some ISO thing that says that yeah, we're supposed to translate it into French. we ha- we never have, but like it's a thing that could happen. You could have French C+ plus you could have Russian C plus plus um
0: that's that's interesting and there
1: is another family of languages which i think um lend themselves well to uh being internationalized What, what what would you think that would be let's see if we have the same thought here a family of languages yeah
0: that lend themselves well to being internationalized yeah I don't, well, by family, do you mean like, you know, sort of the the language families, like the ones that we mentioned, Erlang, Smalltalk, Forth, Algol, uh...
1: I consider it a language family. I don't know if it's a language family and whatever formal definitions you'd come up with,
0: but yeah. Um, I honestly don't know. I don't know what, 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 um, I, I would assume my, if I was thinking a language that is best suited to be, uh internationally translated it would be one with a small set of keywords. Right. So
1: um, how about how about like a lisp language like scheme um which not all o- lisp languages not only tend to have a small set of keywords they tend to um uh they give you a great degree of flexibility to define domain specific languages to define your own operations um and they have very powerful um macro systems um uh you know, I, in some ways, I like to think of Lisp languages as not necessarily being languages as being sort of like a language for expressing a language. Um, so, so I think you know, you, you you could take Scheme and you could define um, uh, a you could redefine macros um, or functions for um, or aliases for all of the sort of core functionality um, using uh, uh, a lexicon from a different language. And then that could be an internationalized version of Scheme. And I think that's pretty true for most of the uh,
0: of the Lisp languages. It's
1: probably also true for Haskell, I think.
0: Uh, well, so I guess the thought in the back of my head is um, when you say international wise does that include libraries because i think actually i'm not i'm not a schemer um, but i am more familiar with racket which is basically an evolved scheme um, and then closure which is a modern scheme or a modern uh, lisp um, by rich hickey and both of those have quite uh large i don't know if they're standard libraries definitely closures um comes with like a core uh, Closure core, which has a ton of algorithms. Yeah. Clojure's is a very beautiful language, um, and so like internationalizing uh, Closure, I would assume would would mean um, also coming up with translations of the the algorithms. Yeah, and that
1: and that would be a lot more work. I mean, one of the nice things about it is the scheme is a very minimal language; It doesn't really have anything like a library, um, which is why I which is why I picked it as as a candidate there. Um, yeah have you have you ever in your career come across um code comments non-english code comments in a project you're working with yeah
0: well so not not a not a project but um if you do any amount of competitive coding at some point in Uh. your career uh, whether it's just for fun or not um on a lot of websites uh there's a ton of um just international uh folks from all over the world that are competing and so I've seen comments in Japanese. I've seen comments in Chinese. I believe I've seen comments in Russia, Russian. Um, I don't believe I've ever seen like variable names, um, but like a lot of a lot of the competitive coding, like you can import um, like, like in C++, you can uh, just copy and paste some file with a ton of macros for like reducing the character count that you need to type. So like a very common one, is instead of uh, for for loops, you'll have a macro that's just 4i that you just need to pass a single number to it that hardcodes your start of your index at zero and then goes up to uh, less than the number that you pass in. Uh, So obviously, like, a terrible coding practice, um, but, like, when speed is the name of the game... um, It can help you write your solutions faster Hmm. and a lot of those like copy and pasted things have like comments in whatever language um the individual is familiar in speaking
1: i've seen it in back when i was working in in high performance computing uh i came across some code where uh, uh that i was i was supposed to port where the comments were all in uh chinese and i remember being quite happy because typically there's no comments in a lot of HPC codes and there's like single letter variables for everything. So I was like, okay, I can't read these comments, but I appreciate that they're here at least. Um, <laughs> and you translate them. Uh, I don't think I needed to. I think, I don't rem- I don't remember what the outcome was, but I don't think it, translation was necessary. I do remember one time seeing um, uh, identifiers that were like, French. <laughs> like, uh, uh, it was in C++, so um, I think it was still like ASCII, but they were like, they were French. <laughs> and that that reminds me of a, of a another amusing language-related uh, programming thing, which is, so I, I work a bit um, with the EDG C++ compiler front-end, which is, um, it's a um, proprietary front-end that you can uh, license from this company, EDG. Um, and it's a very it's a very nice little code base. There's one interesting quirk of the code base, um, which is all of the data types, like the data type for, um, for a node type, it's not called struct node. It's called struct anode. Or the data type for an enum is called struct an enum because whoever like originally structured this code base wanted all of the types to not just be, you know, the noun of what they were, but to have the, whatever you call Mm -hmm. a and an. Um, And uh, I I think if it was like a singleton type, it would be called like struct the singleton. Um, And it was, it's just, (laughs) I, I, it was so, it was so I've never seen anything like that. It's so unique.
0: So actually, I have. Um, It's possible that the individual um, is taking inspiration from small talk. Um, Ah. So in my my small talk learnings, uh, it's very idiomatic for, in fact, like if you, uh, small talk is a wonderful language to to work in. Um, You basically are immersed into a small talk world. Um, Currently, the world that I live in when I code small talk is called Pharaoh, but there used to be ones called Squeak. Um, and it's basically this, like, full-blown IDE with just amazing functionality. Um, but, like, typically you write your unit tests, you click, like, run, and then it'll fail and say, oh, this, this uh, method uh, doesn't exist. And so it's, you, it gives you an option to create it. And so you click create, and then uh, it'll stamp out, basically, the signature and any variables if, you're, if it takes um, uh, sort of arguments. And the name of the arguments, it can tell, like, if you're taking a string it will say, you know, uh, name of your method, colon, a string. Um, and, uh, and if you look at the stan- – well, I'm not sure if it's standard library, but if you look at the libraries that comes with Faro and the Smalltalk language, um, a lot of them use like a stream um, or a string or an integer um, to, to name the arguments or the, ver- uh, the, the parameters that are um, being passed to um, your method. So uh, that's the only other place I've seen it. So potentially this person used yeah. to work in Smalltalk
1: um well there's there's like there's like he's a small company there's like eight people there so uh we could just we could just ask them but i sort of like the 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 myth of it i like the mystery of it
0: (laughs) yeah one thing about i wanted to mention about algol too uh, because i didn't know this at one point um algol actually stands for algorithm language um because it was initially created as a Prototyping language for uh, writing algorithms. Um, it sort of went in a different direction. And I've always thought this was curious because for a while I thought APL should be named. I, I think I mentioned this before, is that I think it should be named the algorithm uh, programming language um, until, yeah, the remark that I made earlier about operators and combinators. So it, it makes sense. Um, but also, too, Algol. If you listen to CppCast or if you've watched any of Kevlin Henney's talks, he's one of my favorite speakers. You probably know this already, um, but Algol is uh, one of the most influential programming languages um, ever. Um, I don't know, like, the complete list of keywords that Algol was responsible for creating, but I, I believe, like, struct um, and a ton of, like, keywords uh, directly come from Algol um, and can be traced all the way into C, but like many other programming languages, yeah. Um, I mean,
1: it, it, it's um, it uh, uh, it's really sort of the 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 root of the family of imperative programming languages. Um, like C, the whole C um, language of the whole C family of languages um, owe a lot to Algol. Um, pretty much all a lot of, of people the, like. The shell programming languages um, ADA Python they all drew a lot of inspiration from algo um, yeah, it was really the first of the the imperative languages which is which is interesting given given that it that original intent of it being a um, an algorithm language um, because you don't yeah. necessarily think of imperative languages as being you know the ideal fit for. Developing pure algorithms. You'd, you'd want perhaps some sort of more functional language for that.
0: Well, so one thing, what was I just going to say? Is that, yes, a, a lot of people um, refer to uh, the C family as the algal family. Um, I think a lot more people are familiar with C, so that's why it's, I think, more colloquially used. Um, but if you go into literature, a lot of times they, they, they read it as the algal family because that's really if you trace the root of the hierarchy back. It goes back to Algol. Um, second thing I wanted to say is that funny that we've mentioned now both scheme and Algol um, scheme is actually the combination of both uh, Lisp and Algol. So the two creators of that language, uh, Guy Steele um, and I believe Gerald Sussman, Sussman's one of the authors of the sick P textbook. Um, they created that language and basically uh, we're combining Algol and Lisp uh so neat that we've mentioned those those two things um and then there was a third thing what was what did you just say at the tail end um i forgot it there's too many things oh, I, God, I, I can't remember it too either. far up the stack um oh, oh so here's another an
1: interesting e- algal fact so um when they were creating algal um uh they formed a working group on algal it was part of the one of the predecessors for one of the predecessor standards organizations for ISO which i think was called IFP or something like that uh here let me look it up yeah international federation for information processing they formed a working group for algol and that working group was called WG2.1 and that's amusing because <laughs> c++ the the uh, descendant of algol um uh is, uh, its standards committee in ISO is WG21. <laughs> so that... That's uh, that,
0: uh, not confusing at yeah,
1: all. Yeah, that, uh, that cracked me up.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I recalled the thing I was going to say. You said that it's odd that um, for sort of designing algorithms, you might expect a more functional language. If you look at almost like all academic literature with respect to algorithms and algorithm textbooks it's all using like imperative for loops and if statements. Um, and I, I, even recently uh, submitted like a kind of assignment um, for a question that was uh, an algorithm based, like design an algorithm to uh, determine whether basically like a set of parentheses are valid, um, which is a very common mm. sort of interview question, like given left and right parentheses, determine whether it's valid. And um, I'm not sure if we've talked about this on this podcast before, but there's a very simple, basically, uh, convert it to 1, negative 1, uh, each of the left parentheses and right parentheses, do a plus scan, and then just check if at any point it goes below 0 and that it ends in a... So it, it shouldn't go below 0, and it should end in a 0. And if you if you can check those two properties on the plus scans of the uh, 1, negative 1, you basically have a valid parentheses. So, like, in a functional language where you have a map and a scan... Uh, it's very easy to code this up and so i submitted it and then the response that i got was uh please do not code this in a functional style uh we only accept imperative styles or whatever and i was just sort of like this is ironic because like like the most idiomatic in my opinion sort of way to solve this is is using maps and scans which are entirely parallelizable um which is i think like a huge mistake that's another thing about apl um not to go back to apl but like when you are design coding your code in all these primitives, your code is basically like inherently parallelizable. Everything's a transform, everything's a scan, everything's uh, you know something that is like trivially parallelizable. And when you code things in for loops and if statements, like okay, good luck. It's like go find the thrust algorithm yeah. that that it corresponds to. Switch it to then, and then you can parallelize your code. Yeah, um, that's that's actually a key th- part of like
1: Nvidia's like high-level parallelism strategy is uh, instead of trying to automatically paralyze code that you've written, like loops that you've written by hand, we provide you with a rich library of algorithmic primitives, which we know how to paralyze, and you use those to construct the algorithms that you need. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk in C++ about, you know, this Sean Perrin idea of no raw loops. Don't use raw loops when you could use a, um, uh, you know, a standard algorithm instead because it expresses your intent clearer. And and yeah, that's true. Um, But when we're thinking about that, we're usually thinking about expresses your intent clearer to other human programmers. But there's a hidden benefit, which is when you write for each instead of a for loop, or when you write reduce instead of writing a for loop that does a reduction, et cetera, et cetera. When you use the the standard algorithm, you're not just making your intent clearer to the programmer, you're making your intent clearer to the compiler. And so when you want to go to parallelize that code, it becomes a lot easier to parallelize when it's, oh, hey, this is just some known algorithm that has certain constraints, and I plug in these user-defined functions, and, and then I can parallelize it, as I wish within those uh, within the constraints of the uh, the algorithm, within the contracts of the algorithm, um, and so that's that's another very powerful uh, aspect of uh, of the no raw loops uh, idiom is that it makes your code easier to parallelize, and to vectorize, yep. and to just optimize a, in general.
0: I think that's a point that like in one of Sean Parent's talks. Um, what now, uh, uh, like C++, a part in three vignettes. He explicitly points that out. Um, the recorded version has very poor audio, but I think I highlighted it in one of my talks where he says, uh, when you use these abstractions, um, you can do later like a code review and figure out, oh yeah, like we would have a huge performance win if we parallelize this. And then all you have to do is just swap in your serial algorithm for a parallel algorithm with the same name and you're done. Like, exactly. exactly. Um <laughs> Talk about a uh, low, low barrier to whatever performance improvement. Um, yeah. Anyways, I feel like we're we've been talking for like an hour. Yeah, now, these were. And, oh, uh, uh,
1: and you know, we we I'm gonna <laughs> you're gonna have to cut this into the beginning, but uh, we had to remind our viewers uh, about the APL drinking game that uh, every time Connor <laughs> mentioned APL during this episode, you were supposed to take a shot of eggnog.
0: This was, uh, this was rich. It's rich from coming from two people that don't drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that our podcast has a drinking game associated yes. with it. Oh. Um, yeah. yeah. Remember we,
1: when we started this and we said these episodes were going to be 20 to 30
0: minutes? Well, so up until now, every episode has been uh, between 30 and 40 minutes. And I thought it was going to be a nice goal to try and always do it between 30 and 40 uh, this one I think definitely is going to be over 40 minutes, probably closer to an hour. Um, yeah, I've got, uh, yeah, I've this got is a, uh,
1: an hour and 20 here.
0: Well, um, I, I think this has been good. Um, this has been fun. Oh yeah, I should, well, this was supposed to happen at the, uh, at the beginning where we read feedback, but we've got oh, yeah. a very nice, lovely, uh, <laughs> we're doing the end, the
1: beginning at the end. That's fine. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll rearrange it. Maybe I won't. Um, we got a very nice piece of feedback. Um, from, uh, I apologize once again for the pronunciation, David Yastremski, uh, who says, really like how your and Bryce's flow has developed through the episodes. This may have been my favorite episode yet, referring to episode four, especially hearing uh, you both reason about why different algorithms would work and the implementations will take a little time this month to give Haskell a try. Um, it probably helped with the functional pieces of C++ as well. And I responded, thanks for the awesome feedback. Um, it's awesome to hear, and I've heard from many non-Haskell devs that uh, learning Haskell has improved the way that they code in their uh, day-to-day programming language. Um, and
1: what, what was his? What was his name?
0: Uh, David Yastrzemski. Yeah, yeah. He, a, um,
1: I chatted with him too.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. So awesome that uh, we're getting better, or at least we're not getting worse. That's <laughs> the key thing. We're not getting worse. <laughs> We make we make no promises to the sponsors that we don't have. Yeah. Um
1: <laughs> Well, um uh I guess uh happy holidays and uh, happy new year to everybody. And uh Yeah. I guess we we may do one more episode. Wait, what's It's next week. I guess there might be another episode. The next episode, episode it...
0: will be released on January 1st. So this is the yeah. last episode of 2020. Yeah, this is um, the last
1: episode of 2020, but there will be an episode next week.
0: Thank God. 2020. <laughs>
1: yeah almost
0: (laughs) over i'm i'm done with this year hopefully 2021 fingers crossed yeah fingers crossed yeah it's
1: gonna be a good year
0: good year yeah hopefully we did we
1: did publish a you know the larger the most uh substantial revision of c++ in a decade this year so there there's that
0: that's true. Maybe well, yeah, we're supposed to do our parallel scan podcast episode, but maybe maybe next episode we can uh, do. Uh, we, well, we'll think about it, but we can try and do a 2020 in review and find the highlights. Um, yeah, <laughs> in the midst of the year that was 2020, uh, and see if we can uh, reflect and be positive about the things that did happen. You know, we we had Prague. Prague was nice. That was Prague the last was a time good I saw people. Meeting. Yeah, that was pretty. Um, was pretty good. Yeah, I got to I got to see the the Herb Sutter, uh, Tony Vineyard and Bjarni Strusrup uh, a vast meetup. That was awesome. Um, so yeah, there was there were some good things. There were some good things that happened in twenty twenty. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. And Bryce and I wish you a safe and happy holidays and a merry Christmas.